0: Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, one of the great joys in creating and working with botanical method aquariums is that we have such a wide variety of natural habitats to take inspiration from. And as we've discussed here over the years, it's not just the types of aquatic habitats or specific locales, it's seasons and cycles that we can emulate in our tanks as well. I find it really fascinating to think about how we can emulate the environmental characteristics of aquatic habitats during certain times of the year, such as the wet and the dry seasons. And the idea of actually operating your aquarium to spur the environmental changes which takes place during these transitions is irresistible to me. Do we create seasonal variations for our aquariums? I mean, changing up lighting duration, intensity, angles, colors, and increasing or decreasing water levels or flow, do we do that stuff? Well, with all of the high-tech LED lighting systems, electronically controlled pumps, and even programmable heaters, we can vary environmental, you know, environmental conditions to mimic what occurs in our uh, fish's natural habitats during seasonal changes like never before. I think it would be really interesting to see what kinds of results we could get with our fishes if we went further into environmental manipulations than we have been able to before. I mean, Sure, hobbyists have been, you know, dropping or increasing temps for spawning fishes forever, and you'll see hobbyists, you know, playing with light uh, durations. Ask any Corydoras breeder, they've been doing that for a long time. However, these are typically done only in the context of defined controlled breeding experiments. Why not simply research and match the seasonal, you know, changes which occur in their natural habitat and vary them accordingly just because and see if you achieve different results. I think this would be something worthwhile. We've examined those really interesting Agapo and Barzea habitats of the Amazon for quite a few years now and how these seasonally inundated forest floors ebb and flow with aquatic life during various seasons. And with our Urban Agapo experiments, we've operated tanks on wet season, dry season dynamic cycles for a number of years now. And we've enjoyed some really interesting results too. I think it would be pretty amazing to incorporate gradual seasonal changes in our botanical method aquariums to slowly increase or decrease water levels, temperature, and lighting to mimic the rainy or dry seasonal cycles which affect this habitat. Like, what secrets could be unlocked? And how would you approach this? Well, first, you'd need some real-time or historical weather data from the area that you're attempting to replicate, but that's readily available. Hello, Internet, right? Right. Then you can literally tell yourself during the planning phases of your next tank that you know this aquarium's going to replicate the environmental conditions of the Igarape panameo in May and, and then just run with it. So what are some of the factors that you take into account when planning such a system? Well, here's a few I'd compiled just to kind of get you started. Obviously, water temperature, pH, water depth, flow rate, lighting conditions, percentage of coverage of aquatic plants, if that's applicable. The substrate composition and its depth, the leaf litter accumulation depth, the density of the fish population, the diversity of the fish population, the food types. I mean, the list can go on and on and on and on. The idea being to not just capture a moment in time in your aquarium, but to pick up and run with it from there. Yeah, we love the concept of seasonality in our botanical method world. We do, but not just because this concept creates interesting aesthetic uh, effects, but Because replicating seasonal changes brings out interesting behaviors and might even yield health benefits for our fishes that we may not have even previously considered. The implications of seasonality in both the natural environment and, I believe, in our aquariums can be quite profound. Amazonian seasonality, for example, is marked by river level fluctuation, also known as seasonal pulses. The average annual river level fluctuations in the Amazon basin can range from approximately 12 feet to 45 feet. That's 4 to 15 meters. Scientists know this because river water level data has been collected in some parts of the Brazilian Amazons for more than a century now. The larger Amazonian rivers fall into what's known as a flood pulse. And, are, and this is actually due to relatively predictable tidal surge processes. And of course, when the water levels rise, what happens? The fish populations are affected in a lot of different ways. Rivers overflow into the surrounding forests and plains, turning the formerly terrestrial landscape into an aquatic habitat once again. Now, besides just knowing the physical environment, you know, environmental impact on our fish's habitats, what can we learn from these seasonal inundations? Well, for one thing, we can observe their impact on the diets of our fishes. In general, Fish and fish and invertebrates, detritus and insects form the most important food resources supporting the fish communities in both the wet and the dry seasons. But the proportions of invertebrates, fruits and fish are reduced during the low water season. So individual fish species exhibit diet changes between high water and low water seasons in these areas. This is a very interesting adaptation and possible something that we could possibly mimic in the aquarium, right? Right. Well, think about the results from one study of gut content analysis from some herbivorous Amazonian fishes during both the wet and dry seasons that I came across. The study determined that the consumption of fruits in Mylosima and Colossoma species, yeah, you've seen them, they're that big-ass paku, you know, those big-ass uh, kerosens. I, I know, we're never going to keep those in aquariums, but they're big. But anyway, they're common fish in that area. The The consumption of fruits was significantly less during the low water periods and the diet was changed with these materials substituted by plant parts and invertebrates which were more abundant during that period of time. So tropical fishes in general changed their diets in different seasons in these habitats to take advantage of the resources available to them. Fruit eating, as I just mentioned, is significantly reduced during the low water period when the fruit sources in the forests, which are the trees, are not really readily accessible to the fishes because the water has receded. During these periods of time, fruit eating fishes, also known as frugivores, consume more seeds than fruits and supplement their diets with food like leaves, detritus, and even plankton. Interestingly, even known grazers like leperinus and headstanders were found to consume a greater proportion of materials like seeds during the low water season the availability of different food sources at different times of the year will necessitate you know adapt you know adaptability in fishes um you know kind of in order to assure their survival i mean it makes sense right mud and algal growth on plants rocks submerged trees all that stuff is really quite abundant in these waters at various times of the year mud and detritus are transported via the overflowing rivers into flooded areas and contribute to the forest leaf litter and other botanical materials become nutrient sources which contribute to the growth of the epiphytic algae. So, during the lower water periods, this organic layer helps compensate for the shortage of other food sources. Again, making sense here, right? And of course, this layer comprises an ecological habitat for a variety of organisms at multiple trophic levels. So, there's also, of course, the allochthonous input. materials that are imported into the habitat from outside it. When the water level is at a high period and the forests are inundated, fruits fall down and many terrestrial insects fall into the water from trees and they're consumed by fishes. In general, insects, both terrestrial and aquatic, support a large community of fishes. So it kind of goes without saying that the importance of insects and fruits, which were, you know, or they're essentially derived from the, the flooded forests, are reduced during the dry season when the fishes are confined to open water and they have to feed on different materials, as we just mentioned here. And in turn, fishes feed on many of these organisms that eat the materials too. These guys on the lower end of the food chain, the bacterial biofilms, algal mats, and fungal growths have a disproportionately important role though in the food webs in these habitats. In fact, fungi are the key to the food chain in many tropical stream ecosystems. The relatively abundant detritus produced by the leaf litter is really an important part of this tropical stream food web. Now, interestingly, some research has suggested that the decomposition of leaf litter in igapó forests is facilitated by terrestrial insects during the dry phase. In other words, they're consuming this stuff on the dry forest floor and that the periodic flooding of this habitat actually slows down the decomposition of leaf litter, relatively speaking, because of the periodic elimination of these insects during that inundation and many of the organisms which survive the inundation feed off the detritus and use the leaf substratum for shelter instead of dire- or or you know instead of directly feeding on it which further slows down the decomposition process kind of interesting right and as i just touched on much of the important input of nutrients into these habitats consists of the leaf litter and the fungi that decomposes litter so the bulk of this fauna that's found there is concentrated in accumulations of submerged litter. And the nutrients that are released into the water as a result of the decomposition of the litter don't just go into solution in the water. Rather, they're, they're tied up throughout the food web comprised of the aquatic organisms that live in these habitats. Pretty neat stuff. Now, this concept of food from various trophic levels, it's foundational to our interpretation of the Botanical Method Aquarium. So I wonder, is part of the key to successfully conditioning and breeding some of the fishes found in these types of habitats, could that be altering their diets to mimic the seasonal importance and scarcity of various food items? In other words, feeding more insects at one time of the year and perhaps allowing fishes to graze on detritus and bio-cover at other times of the year. Would that have some benefits? And you probably already know the answer to this question. I mean... Is the concept of creating a food-producing aquarium complete with detritus, natural mud, and an abundance of decomposing materials a key to creating a more realistic feeding dynamic as well as an aesthetically functional aquarium? That's a loaded question, because hell yeah, you know that. On a practical level, our botanical method aquariums function much like the habitats which they purport to represent. And famously, you know, recruiting biofilm and fungal growth, and we've discussed ad nauseum over the years. These are nutritious, natural food sources for most fishes and invertebrates. And of course, there are the associated microorganisms which feed on the decomposing botanicals and leaves and their resulting detritus. So having some decomposing leaves, botanicals and detritus helps foster supplemental food sources, period. And you don't need, you know, special botanicals, leaves, curated packages of botanicals, additives or gear from me or from anyone to create this stuff. Nature will do it. it. It'll do it all for you using whatever botanical materials you add to your aquarium. S- simple as that. Apparently though, the years of us beating this shit into your head here on the tent and everywhere else I've written and spoken are starting to strike a chord. There's literally people posting pics of their botanical method aquariums on social media every week with hashtags like, you know, detritus Thursday or whatever preaching the benefits of this stuff that we, as a hobby, have sort of reviled for basically a century. I think that's kind of funny. It absolutely cracked me up the first time I saw people posting stuff like that. Five years ago, people literally called me an idiot online for telling hobbyists to celebrate this stuff. Now, it's a freaking hashtag. It's some weird shit, I'm telling you, but it's gratifying to see. But yeah, it is a little bit weird. And now, as we you know, briefly talked about uh, decomposing leaf litter and the resulting detritus supports a population of other organisms. We call them infusoria here in the, the hobby. It's sort of a collective term you used, used to describe, you know, these really minute aquatic creatures like ciliates, euglenoids, um, protozoa, unicellular algae, and even small invertebrates that exist in freshwater ecosystems. And there's much more to explore about that. It's no secret or surprise to most aquarists who've played with botanicals that you know, a tank with a healthy leaf litter layer component, it's a pretty damn good place to raise fry. That's something that we're hearing more and more about. It's been observed by many aquarists, particularly those who breed, you know, loricarids, guarmis, betas, and kerosens, that the fry have significantly higher survival rates when reared in systems where leaves and other botanical materials are present. This is significant. I'm sure some success from this could be attributed to the population of you know, infusoria present within this system as the leaves break down. And the insights gained by seeing firsthand how fishes have adapted to seasonal changes and have made them part of their life cycles are becoming invaluable to our botanical method aquarium practice. Now, it's an oft-repeated challenge I toss out to you, the adventurers, the innovators, and the bold practitioners of the aquarium hobby. Follow nature's lead whenever possible. See where it takes you. You know, literally leave no leaf unturned, no piece of wood unstudied, push the boundaries and blur the lines between nature and aquarium, follow those seasons, and place the aesthetic component of our botanical method aquarium practice at a lower level of importance than the function, please. Now, I'm fairly certain that that idea will make me even less popular with some people in the aquarium, you know, crowd who feel that the descriptor of natural is their exclusive purview and that aesthetics, you know, reign supreme. Hey, look, I love the look of a well-crafted tank as much as anybody, but let's face it, a truly natural aquarium needs to embrace stuff like detritus, mud, decomposing botanical materials, varying water tint and clarity, all that stuff. Yet the aesthetics of botanical method tanks are different. They might not be able to a cup of tea, but the possibilities for creating more self-sustaining, ecologically sound microcosms are numerous, and the potential benefits for fishes are many by embracing this technique, this approach. It goes back to some of the stuff we've talked about before over the years here, like, you know, pre-stocking aquariums with lower life forms before adding your fishes, or at least attempting to foster the growth of aquatic insects and crustaceans, encouraging the complete decomposition of leaves and botanical materials, allowing a bio cover to accumulate on rocks substrate and wood within the aquarium, utilization perhaps even of a, a refugium filled with these materials during the startup of phases of your tank and, and beyond. There's all kinds of ideas. All these things are worth investigating when we look at them from a functionality perspective and, you know, make the mental shift to visualize why a real aquatic habitat looks like this and how its, you know, elegance and natural beauty can be every bit as attractive as those super pristine, highly controlled, artificially laid out, plant-centric scapes that you know dominate the minds of most aquarists when they hear the words natural and aquarium together particularly when the function provides benefits for our animals that we wouldn't appreciate or even see otherwise you know here at tannin i'm tooting my own horn for whatever reason i don't know but i mean here i know we've pushed rather unconventional hobby viewpoints since our founding in 2015 and as an aquarist i've had these viewpoints on the hobby for decades A sort of desire to accept the history of our hobby, to understand how best practices and techniques came along into being, while being tempered by a strong desire to question and look at things a bit differently, to see if maybe there's different or perhaps a better way to accomplish the same things we've been doing for centuries. Most of my time in the hobby has been occupied by looking at how nature works and seeing if there's a way to replicate some of her processes in the aquarium or if there's an analog for them despite the aesthetics of the processes involved, or potentially even the results. But as a result, I've learned to appreciate nature as she is. And I've long ago given up much of my aquarium-trained sensibilities to try to edit or polish stuff out I see in my aquariums, simply because they don't fit the prevailing aesthetic sensibilities of the hobby. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't care how things look, of course, that'd be stupid. But rather, it means that I've accepted a different aesthetic, one that, for better or worse in some people's minds, more accurately reflects what natural aquatic habitats really look like. And the idea of replicating the seasonal changes in our aquariums is driven not primarily from aesthetics but from function. To sort of put a bow on this now rather unwieldy discussion about fostering and managing our own versions of seasonal ecological changes in our aquariums, let's just revisit once again how botanical materials accomplish what they do in our aquariums. The idea that we're adding these materials not only to influence the aquatic environment in our aquariums, but to provide food and sustenance for a wide variety of organisms, not just our fishes, is really important. The fundamental essence of the Botanical Method Aquarium is that the use of these materials provide the foundation for an ecosystem. The essence, just like they do in nature. And the primary process which drives this closed ecosystem is, wait for it, decomposition. Decomposition of leaves and botanical materials, not only imparts the substances contained within them, lignin, organic acids, and tannins, just to name a few, into the water, it serves to nourish bacteria, fungi, and the other microorganisms and crustaceans which reside there, facilitating a basic food web within the botanical method aquarium. If, if we allow it to. And I think that's a big if, that's important. We can't just reach for the siphon hose every time we see something we don't like decomposition of plant matter and botanicals, you know, occurs in a few stages. It starts with leaching-soluble carbon compounds, which are liberated during this process. Another early process is physical breakup or fragmentation of the plant material into smaller pieces, which have greater surface area for colonization by microbes. And of course, the ultimate state to which leaves and other botanical materials evolve to is our old buddy, detritus. And of course, that very word, as we've mentioned many times before, including just a few minutes ago, used to just frighten and motivate tons of hobbyists over the years into removing as much of the stuff as possible from their aquariums whenever and wherever it appeared. Siphoning detritus is a sort of thing that we were asked about near constantly over the years. We still are. makes perfect sense, of course, because our aquariums, by virtue of the materials they utilize, produce substantial amounts of this stuff. Now, the idea of detritus takes on a different meaning in our botanical method aquariums. Our aquarium definition... And then I use that term loosely because there's no real generally accepted definition, but the definition of detritus typically is agreed to be, you know, dead particulate matter, uh, including fecal material, dead organisms, mucus, et cetera, et cetera, you know, not sounding that great. And bacteria and other microorganisms will colonize this stuff and decompose or remineralize it, essentially completing the cycle. And despite their impermanence, these materials function as diverse harbors of life, You know, ranging from fungal and biofilm mats to algae to microcrustaceans and even epiphytic plants. Decomposing leaves, seed pods, and tree branches make up the substrate for this really complex web of life, which helps the fishes that we love so much flourish throughout the various seasons. And if you look at them objectively and carefully, these assemblages and the processes which form them are beautiful. And we'd be well advised to let them do their work unmolested. On a purely practical level, these processes accomplish the most in our aquariums if we let nature do her work without excessive intervention. Meaning, don't siphon the shit out of it. <laughs> An example, I'm laughing at myself, that's funny. An example. Okay, I'll give you one. Uh, how about our approach towards prepping materials for use in our tanks? After literally decades of playing with botanical method aquariums, I'm starting to rethink things a little bit and thinking that maybe we should do less and less preparation of certain materials, specifically wood, to encourage a slower breakdown and colonization by beneficial bacterial and fungal growth. Now, the rap on wood has always been that it gives off a lot of tin-producing tannins, much to the collective out of the non-botanical method aquarium fans. Of course, to us... All these extra tannins are not so much of an issue, right? Weigh down the wood and let it cure in situ before adding your fishes. I think there's something to be said for that. And then there's the whole concept of getting fishes into the tank as quickly as possible. Like, like why? We should slow our roll here. We're so fast. I've written and spoken about this idea before, as no doubt you have. Adding botanical materials to your tank and pre-colonizing them you know, with, with beneficial life forms is before you even think of adding a fishes is, is a really good idea a way to sort of get the system broken in with a functioning little food web and some natural nutrient export processes in place it's a chance for the life forms that would otherwise likely fall prey to fishes to get a foothold and multiply to create a sustainable population of self-generating prey items for your fishes if you look at it that way and that's a fundamental thing for us recruiting and nurturing the community of organisms which support our aquariums the whole foundation of the botanical method aquarium is the is you know these very materials botanicals, soils wood which comprise the infrastructure of our aquariums the botanicals create a physical and chemical environment which supports these life forms allowing them to flourish and to support the life forms above them from there we can operate our systems in any manner of ways Nature provides some really incredible inspiration for this stuff, doesn't it? I mean, marshland and flooded plains and forests and long rivers are like the poster children for seasonal change in the tropics. We well, we'd well, we be well advised to study those. Flood pulses in these habitats, you know, easily enable large scale transfers of nutrients and food items between terrestrial and aquatic environments. And this is a huge importance to the ecosystem overall. As I've touched on before, aquatic food webs In the Amazon area, and in other tropical ecosystems for that matter, they're very strongly influenced by the input of terrestrial materials. And this is really an important point for us to know in order to create more natural aquatic displays and microcosms for the fishes that we want to keep. Because the aquatic ecology is driven by the surrounding terrestrial habitats seasonally, the impact of leaves which fall into the aquatic habitats is very important. Well, what makes leaves fall off the trees in the first place? Well, it's simple, or rather complex, but I suppose it's simple too. Essentially, the tree commands—and I use that in air quotes—leaves to fall off the tree by creating specialized cells, which appear where the leaf stem of the leaves meets the branches. These are known as abscission cells. For word junkies, that actually is the same Latin root word as the word scissors. So you get it. Which, of course, implies that these cells are designed to make a cut. So. The leaves fall off and in the tropical species of trees, the leaf drop is important to the surrounding environment. The nutrients are typically bound up in the leaves, so a regular release of leaves by the trees helps replenish the minerals and nutrients which are typically depleted from eons of leaching into the surrounding forest. And the rapid nutrient depletion, by the way, is why it's not healthy to to burn tropical forests. The release of nutrients as a result of fire is so rapid that the habitat can't process it. And in essence, the nutrients are lost forever. Now look, interestingly enough, most tropical forest trees are classified as evergreens. You probably didn't think about that, but they don't have a specific seasonal leaf drop like the deciduous trees that many of us are more familiar with in the Northern Hemisphere. Rather, they replace their leaves gradually throughout the year as the leaves age and subsequently fall off the trees. So, so what's the implication here? Well, the implication is that there's more or less a continuous supply of leaves falling off into the jungles and waterways in these habitats throughout the year, which is why you'll see leaves at various stages of decomposition in tropical streams. It's also why leaf litter banks may be almost permanent structures within some of these bodies of water. Now, here's an easy experiment for you to try, a seasonal thing. Manage and replicate this in your aquarium by adding leaves at different times of the year, increasing you know, the quantities in some months and backing off during others. It's a relatively simple process with possible profound implications for aquariums. And it makes me wonder, what if we stopped replacing leaves and even lowered water levels or, you know, just decreased water exchanges in our tanks to correspond with, I don't know, for example, the Amazonian dry season, which is June to December. What would do it? What would it do? If you consider that many fishes spend uh, a lot of the dry season spawning, concentrating in the shallow waters could this have implications for breeding or for growth in fishes i think so I, I really do just a few easy ideas each with the promise and a potential to change the way we manage botanical method aquariums and possibly impact the way we look at so-called natural aquariums in the first place and with all the research data from the wild habitats of our fishes being more easily accessible than ever before, the time is right to start these you know very bold experiments Obviously, there's still much to learn. And of course, the bigger question that many will ask is, what's the advantage? Well, that's all part of the fun. We can play a hunch, but we don't know for certain until we really delve into this stuff. So who's in? Stay thoughtful. Stay curious. Stay engaged. Stay innovative. Stay diligent. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman. Thanks for spending part of your your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tent.